Welcome to episode 10 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills and how to be a better partner, a better teammate, a better speaker, a better writer, and a better leader by improving your communication skills. In episode 9, we were talking about small group communication practices and being a teammate and teamwork. And one of the things I was saying in that episode is that teamwork required both a set of what I called relational communication skills. And we sort of outlined or unpacked some of those relational communication skills in last week's episode. And I said that um, effective teamwork also requires good functional communication skills. So this week we're gonna go through the kind of complementary set of functional communication skills that go along with the relational communication skills we talked about last week. The idea here is that a really good teammate will match the two, will, will practice both the relational things we talked about last week and the functional things that we're going to talk about this week. And just as we did last week, um, I'm going to talk through sort of the effective forms of functional communication, and I'll talk through some things to be on the lookout for for bad teammates and things to avoid or what I like to call ineffective functional communication practices. So we're going to we're going to look at, at both. Um, let's start by trying to define effective functional communication. Um, and trying to get you a sense of the value that underlies functional communication. So first of all, um, I think I said in an episode, previous episode, that uh, teams, usually you get together with a team, that team has a functional goal. There's something that they need to accomplish, some end that they're striving to. And it doesn't matter what that end might be. If you're a basketball team, it might be the NBA championship. If you're a sales and marketing team, it might be increasing your sales of some product by 50% by year end, et cetera. There's, there's a goal in place. So functional communication practices in a team setting are those communication practices designed to achieve the particular functional goal that's at stake. As part of that process, inevitably, a team has to make a collective decision. So if you're going to figure out how best to win an NBA championship, you have to decide what kind of defense to play, what kind of offense to play. If you're going to try and improve your, your market shares for and you're part of a marketing and sales team, you need to make a decision about what kind of sales strategy you're going to use, what kinds of set of practices you'll put in place to reach that particular end. So the key part of any team's work is coming to a decision about what to do to achieve that functional goal. Okay, so here's that seems obvious, right? Fine. Um, Communication practices designed to help make a decision are often in teamwork oriented around two different separate competing values. And you can, if you see a communication practice and you ask yourself, well, what's va what value is behind this practice? What's the value here? Um, you should be able to identify one of these two competing values and then you'll know whether or not that's an effective or an ineffective functional communication practice. So on the one hand, effective functional communication practices are supported by the value of cooperation. In other words, a person tries to communicate in some way with the team in order to achieve a goal 
But that way of communicating with the team is driven by a desire for cooperation. On the other hand, ineffective functional communication is supported by the value of what's called individuation. Individuation is when someone engages in a communication practice to make themselves stand out from or seem different than all the other members with whom they're communicating. So the drive on the one hand for individuation fuels communication practices that are not helpful for functional decision-making. On the other hand, the drive for cooperation fuels effective communication practices that help make decisions. So in a very basic way, if I'm a teammate, the first thing I'm going to do is say, okay, uh, that person just communicated in way X. Now, is way X um, driven by the value of individuation or is it driven by the value of cooperation? Which is it? If it's driven by the value of individuation, odds are that communication practice is not going to be very helpful for, for the, the team making a good functional decision. If it's driven by the value of cooperation, odds are that team that uh, person's contribution is going to aid in um, in making a good functional decision for the team. Um, okay, so the project of cooperation. Uh, how do you support the project of cooperation? Well, uh, many of the relational communication practices that we talked about last week will support the project of cooperation. Will also advance the value of cooperation. However, um, they're not enough. We also need to have a process in place in which we can weigh evidence, make arguments, um, in other words, in which, in which cooperation can be rational. So cooperation is both a rational and an emotional, a socio-emotional thing. You know, cooperation allows us to feel bound to one another, but it also is a rational process. So in communication studies, we have identified the rational, the, the process that is most rational and works best to promote the value of cooperation and works best for teams to come to good functional or make good functional decisions. Uh, this is called co functional communication theory. Uh, some very famous people in the field of communication studies have, have advocated for it, uh, explained it, and collected evidence to support it. So the first thing you know about uh, the first thing about effective functional communication that's driven by cooperation then is that we need a process in place. We need a process in place that's rational and cooperative. That process has five steps. So a good teammate knows how to follow this five-step functional process in order to be in order to make a good decision for the team, in order to arrive at a good decision for the team and in order to advance the value of cooperation. So here are the five steps, and this is really simple and really obvious, um, but it actually is hard to put into practice is, is the problem. The five steps are first step. You're supposed to collect information. Um, so let me use an example. Uh, I think I use sports examples too often, but last year in the American League, a guy named Josh Donaldson, who plays for the Toronto Blue Jays here in where I live, won the MVP award. And the MVP award in baseball is what's called the most valuable player. And every year there is a debate about who should be the most valuable player, who should win the, the award. The first part in deciding who's going to win the MVP has to be collecting some information. 
So in that case, you know, what was Josh Donaldson's batting average? What was his on-base percentage? How many home runs did he have? How many RBIs did he have? How many games did he play in? How many errors did he make? Et cetera. I collect as much information as, about him as I can. I also collect as much information as I can about all the other candidates. Uh, you know, Mike Trout is the, was, I think, the came in second. So how, what was his batting average? How many home runs did he hit? Et cetera. I get some information. That's step one. Now, what's important about step one is in the process of collecting information, I haven't already decided who I think ought to be the MVP. I've suspended judgment. So this process, in order to be rational, requires some suspension of judgment until later in the process. So before judgment comes collecting information. Second step is identifying the values behind the decision that needs to be made. And so every year, I've been watching baseball for since like 1985, so whatever year it is, it's like 30 years or so. Um, every year, there's a debate about what the term most valuable player means, what the value in the word valuable happens to be. And every year, some people say, well, it's just, it's just the best player. Other years, some people say, no, no, it has to be a player from a winning team. It has to be. Because valuable means you've made a contribution to your team so that the team can be successful. Um, it doesn't matter the decision. If you're making a decision about what sales strategy to use in you know, some sort of marketing campaign, there's still going to be a value underlying the decision. So a good teammate collects information, then identifies what values are involved in the decision. Are we valuing X? Are we valuing Y? Etc. Based on the values and on the information, the third step part of the process is to identify a range, the broadest range possible of potential solutions. The broadest possible range of potential solutions. Uh, right now, I'm, uh, we're, we're all suffering through Donald Trump's campaign. And what is interesting about Donald Trump is so often he says, we have no choice. We must do X. We have no choice. We must build a wall with Mexico. Um, as a rhetorician, sort of alarm bells go off whenever I hear the phrase, we have no choice. Uh, it is a scary rhetorical trope to use. Um, it's universally false. It is a fallacy every single time. Um, a good teammate that wants to reach a good decision would never say that. Instead, the process requires you to identify a broad range of potential solutions based on the information and the values in front of us. So if I'm going to vote on MVP, I can't just say Josh Donaldson had a great year. These were his, his, these were his statistics. The Blue Jays made the playoffs. End of story. No, I've got to identify the broadest range of possible candidates for MVP. So, you know, I need 10, 12, 15 names to weigh him against in my deliberative sort of process. It, there's, it's, there's never no choice. There's always a broad range of solutions that need to be weighed against one another. Okay, so you collect information, you identify values, you, you generate a broad range of solutions. Fourth, you weigh the pros and cons of each solution. So there's a process of comparison now at play. You need to weigh the advantages and the disadvantages of each of the solutions that have been proposed and compare them to one another. The, that leads to the fifth step in the process, which is to make a decision based on the weighing of the pros and cons, the generating of the solutions, the identifying of values, and the collecting of, of information. So that's the five-step functional communication process. You suspend judgment until the end, until you've gone through the process of collecting information, identifying values, proposing a broad range of solutions, weighing pros and cons. That process of suspending judgment and allowing um, information, values, solutions, and pros and cons to come to the, the fore is a good 
positive functional communication practice. It is cooperative because you have not interjected your ego into the, the deliberative process so far as to derail it or to render judgment before um, this kind of, of working through happens. And this working through is rational. It's a collective form of rationality in which many people get to share all the information they can, identify all the values they can, propose all the solutions they can, and weigh all the pros and cons that they can. So it's a rational cooperative process in which individuals suspend their judgment until after the process has been followed through on. It's not complicated, it's not difficult, but all the time, all the time, teams um, do not follow this process and then render bad decisions. Right now I'm, I'm watching this show called Silicon Valley on HBO. It's um, basically, um, uh, it's a comedy about um, these tech companies and the decision-making in some of the tech companies is totally ludicrous. Um, th there's, there's very little of this process at play. There's very little collecting information, identifying values, proposing a broad range of solution ways and weighing pros and cons, et cetera. Uh, it just, it just doesn't happen. Um, so a good teammate knows this process and tries to get the team to follow it. So, cause here's the kicker. If the team follows this process, the evidence suggests that team will make a better functional decision and making a better decision increases the likelihood that you will achieve that goal, whatever goal you're trying to pursue. Okay. The second, um, effective communication practice that I want to suggest is that that's a collective process inside the collective process. Each teammate will be offering information, will be suggesting things or values, will be recommending solutions, will be weighing pros and cons, et cetera. Individuals, in other words, have to make arguments inside that deliberative process. And the process of making arguments is another form of effective functional communication. And I wanna explain what an argument is, and I wanna suggest um, a kind of effective form of argumentation. An argument is not a fight between two people. That's one definition of it, but that's not what I mean here. An argument is a claim that's made, and a claim, by definition, is an invitation to a response. It's, uh, hey, I'm suggesting this, what do you think in response to it? It is a claim that is supported by full, clear, and precise evidence and reason. I just wanna say that one more time. It's a claim that's supported by full, clear, and precise evidence and reasons. So a good teammate makes full, clear, and precise arguments. By that I mean a full argument is an argument that's supported by lots and lots and lots of evidence. A clear argument is an argument that the other members of the group or the other members of the team understand fully. A precise argument is one that has narrowed down and clearly and succinctly articulated the justifications for the argument. So to go back to my MVP example just for a moment, Josh Donaldson should be the MVP. Okay, that's the, the end, if that's the end, while we follow the process, inside the process I say, look, here are his full statistics for the year. Batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, uh, OBP, which is, uh, or, oh, sorry, O, uh, I don't remember, OPS, sorry, OPS is the, the new thing now. Um, 
home runs per at bat. The, so I have collect all of the data. That makes the argument full. Then I have to make it clear that this data supports his excellence and it correlates with the Blue Jays winning a lot. So I wanna make the clearest argument I can make as to why that's the case. And I wanna be precise in my language. Um, if I do all those things, if I make full, clear, and precise arguments in this five-step process, then other people will have a chance to respond, to ask, to ask questions, um, but my rational contribution, my singular rational contribution, will enhance the collaborative rational process thoroughly, and that will lead to a good decision. Okay, so that's effective, uh, effective functional communication driven by the value of cooperation. You want to, by the way, offer fear, full, clear, and precise arguments because you're concerned. You, you, want, you, you want to make an impact on, on others. Okay, some, in our last few minutes here, let's talk about some um, ineffective forms of functional communication. Like I said a few minutes ago, ineffective forms of fun functional communication are driven by the value of individuation. So when you see a teammate trying to assert their difference from the team, you know you've got a communication practice driven by individuation. So let me give you four examples of communicative behaviors driven by individuation that are ineffective forms of functional communication. First is what I call the fetish of assertion. Um, people that like the fetish of assertion like to go into a meeting and say, well, we all know that all of the people that do this believe X, period. That's the fetish of, of assertion. The fetish of assertion is making an argument or a claim or a judgment before the process of collecting information, values, solutions, and weighing pros and cons uh, is sort of before everyone partakes in that process, essentially. Most often, the reason someone makes a judgment before a process is they want to be known, they want to be seen, they want to be identified as uh, somebody really smart or somebody really important in the room. Uh, they say something that's definitive in an attempt to stand out as a member of the team. But be wary of the person that's, that is engaged in the fetish of assertion. They're subverting the process just for their own glory, essentially. Um, and I have, in all my classes, this always happens every year, there's in small group communication, there's a bunch of students who just wanna make claims that they, they wanna do X, so we should just do X. And they've already decided that X is the best course of action. Uh, those students are engaged in the fetish of assertion because they think that uh, doing that will make them stand out in the group and be identified as a leader, but that's not a cooperative thing. Uh, second is the propensity for ambiguity. People that are ambiguous are often ambiguous because they think that they're being clear, but they're not being clear because they're not thinking about what they've said from the perspective of the other teammates. So I used to teach engineers a lot, and engineers have this really advanced, um, they're, they're, engineers are smart people and they deal with complicated things. But oftentimes I would be, I would put them in groups together and if they came from different engineering fields, one person would just say, oh, we just have to do X, Y, and Z. And everyone else would, and so if it was a computer engineer, they would just be like, well, we just need to build a binary code that, that, that has the functional variable Z. And everyone else in the room would be like, I, what the heck is this guy talking about? And the person would just spell, oh, that's perfectly clear. If you don't understand, it's your fault. Uh, no, it's perfectly unclear to all the other members of the group. This person has the propensity to, for ambiguity. Um, 
and some people do it intentionally. They just speak in jargon or, or intentionally ambiguous phrases. Um, and anybody that has a propensity for ambiguity is seeing themselves as separate from the group and outside of the responsibilities of cooperation. Third is the person I call the lover of the non sequitur. The lover of the non sequitur introduces irrelevant things into team functional team processes. So it's like you're sitting down for a meeting and somebody says, you know, I was just in Jamaica last week and I noticed that uh, Jamaican people, they really like spicy food. And you're like, what, what is this going on? What is this craziness? Who cares? Um, the lover of the non sequitur just introduces information that's totally irrelevant to the, func to the functional process we outlined before. That collecting information, values, solutions, pros and cons thing, that should be oriented around the decision that has to be made. But someone that loves the non sequitur introduces irrelevant parts, irrelevant stuff, just because they want to have their voice heard, just because they want to be seen as a part of the process, and they want to be identified as a contributor somehow to what's going on. So avoid the person that, the, or no one to identify the fetish of assertion, the propensity for ambiguity, the lover of the non sequitur, and the fourth person to look out for is the ultra defensive teammate. And the ultra defensive teammate is constantly offering an opinion. And then when someone asks a question about it, going into super hyper defensive mode and defending that position's veracity against everyone else. And the super defensive person often comes more, becomes more committed to their judgment about the team's process or the team's functional decision than they were beforehand. Really, really defensive people, when you question them, become more wedded or more committed to the proposition that they hold. Really defensive people are also people that are driven by the value of individuation. They want to see themselves as special. They get frustrated because they're not seeing themselves as, uh, they're not being seen as special by the rest of the group. And that creates uh, all sorts of problems. So be on the lookout for the ultra defensive person. If you see a person engaged in these kinds of assertions or judgments before the process, these kinds of ambiguity, non introducing non sequiturs or being ultra defensive, you know you have someone that's not a very good teammate or that's not pursuing the functional task of communication effectively. Okay, so that's functional communication in a team setting. Follow the process, make full, clear, precise arguments, then you'll be cooperative. In instead, if you assert yourself too frequently, make judgments before the process are too ambiguous, introduce non sequiturs or are ultra defensive, you'll be driven by individuation and you won't help the team achieve the functional task. So if a team is gonna be good, if they're going to make good decisions, they need effective functional communication just as much as they need effective relational communication. So that's it for week 10 of uh, this podcast. Now we're talking on, about communication skills. The next two weeks, we're gonna turn back to, uh, to some interpersonal communication things. I wanna underscore what we talked about in the very first episode further and talk about what that has to do with love. Um, so we'll switch back to interpersonal communication for a couple of episodes. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and I hope you'll be back next week for episode 11. Take care.